You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 450 of this podcast. Today is technically Thursday, August 11th, 2022, and it's an interesting time of the 24-hour period. We can't really call it day because actually it's uh, about a quarter till one o'clock in the morning right now as I record this. It's an interesting time of the 24-hour period to record this episode where we're going to talk about Sam Alberry, the Gospel Coalition, and relating appropriately in an anxious age. Now, why am I, <laughs> first things first, up at this hour recording this podcast at nearly one o'clock in the morning? Well, it's funny you should ask. At least I assume you would ask. I'll ask for you and then I'll answer because I'm sure you're wondering. I worked all day and it being a Wednesday, it was a very especially busy Wednesday. There was a lot to do, lots of bouncing back and forth and back and forth. The morning and into the mid-afternoon was uh, just me and five of our youngest kids. My wife, Lauren took the oldest two to Denver to do a placement test for early college. They are respectively oldest and second oldest in their sophomore and freshman year of high school coming up here. And they're going to be taking some classes at Ames Community College. And those classes are going to count for dual credit, which is great. Why not? Right? But they needed to take a placement test, and so she needed to take them. And it just wasn't gonna, it wasn't gonna make sense to take all of our kids. And so she took the youngest, very very youngest, Andrew, and she took the oldest too, early this morning. And so it was just me and five of our youngest, and a very busy work day. Well, the very busy work day ended up going into the evening. And I worked late trying to do some cleanup on some of our servers. And then we get settled for the night. We say, okay, that's enough. Just about to turn it off and go to bed. And a call comes in. Some things are not functioning quite correctly for the night shift IOC personnel. And so I take a look at that and we think it's working okay or they'll call me back and then you know okay cool so then we head to bed and i was maybe 30 minutes into sleep for the night and ioc calls me back and so i helped i worked on some things actually probably spent a bit longer on it than i necessarily needed to but by the time I was done readdressing or addressing a new uh, a issue that they were having, I was just so awake. I tried laying down to go back to sleep, and I'm just so awake. So I thought to myself, okay, if I'm just going to be awake anyways, I have missed a few days this past week. Might as well jump in and get some things off my chest, if you will. And it just so happened I had an outline that I was working on Uh, actually at the same time I was working on the outline for our last episode talking about the book Nudge by Richard H. Thaler and Cass R. Sunstein. But this outline, rather than being all of a piece with that episode on Nudge, I figured, okay, I'm going to break it out and I'll do the book review of Nudge first And then I will do this 
episode about anxiety. And maybe actually that'll be for the best because some of what I have to say about the subject of living in an anxious age, so-called, it really does have a lot to do with the subject of our last episode. We live in a very manipulated, highly marketed, highly nudged time. And I think that it causes a lot of folks to just not be sure, especially when they're in a hurry, to really not be sure how much of what they think they're making decisions on is actually them making decisions on those things. There's a lot of interdependence and there's a lot of dependency and there's a lot of uh, just not really uh, getting straight talk from one another in society. And then when you do get something approaching straight talk, uh, all too often, it has a decidedly uh, abrasive and mean feel to it. Because so much of the rest of the messaging that we're hearing and seeing is the soft sell, the power of suggestion. We are telling one another the kinds of things that we're used to hearing on the radio or seeing on a billboard or what have you. We're used to trying to market what it is that we want people to know instead of just telling them directly. And so we're not very good. Many of us are just not very good at the straight talk thing. And also, too, the soft sell approach is not doing us a whole lot of favors. And actually needing that all the time, being conditioned to communicate in that way, makes us very, very vulnerable to a whole host of problems. One of them being, I think, in some measure, anxiety. But there's a lot of ways that people are coping with their anxiety. And not all of them. Uh, actually, uh, almost <clears throat> almost all of them are making things worse too. And then you come to the marketing firms and the public relations folks and the campaign managers and uh, HR and CEOs and you know what have you the the whole range of people and persons and institutions that are trying to sell us things picking up on the fact that we live in an anxious age. And so then all of a sudden, even our anxiety at living in this very manipulated post-truth, post-Christian <laughs> America, even our being anxious about that becomes a avenue of trying to sell us something, trying to pitch to us more that we have to be anxious about really truly. But, you know, just take, for instance, one example for starters. There's many examples that we could cite, but one example for starters of something that people are turning to to cope with their anxiety, uh, food. And people are eating too much and the wrong things. And Bill Maher actually had a really great segment. I think it was really great in which he was taking the task not only the fact that we are so many of us overweight, but also how the fact of our being overweight is being now talked about and how even an attempt at criticizing or suggesting that maybe this isn't good, it's not healthy, like giving a warning, how that's being labeled fat shaming or fat phobic. Take a listen. Here's a little bit of Bill Maher in a recent segment he did on fat acceptance. There's a disturbing trend going on in America these days, rewriting science to fit ideology or just to fit what you want reality to be. We've gone from fat acceptance to fat celebration. That's new. That is new. To view letting yourself go as a point of pride? We used to at least try and be fit and healthy. And society praised those who succeeded. Now the term body positivity is used to mean I'm perfect the way I am because I'm me. <laughs> it's Orwellian how often positivity is used to describe what's not healthy. Of course you can get away with anything bad for you when you're young. But let me ask you this. Have you ever seen a fat 90-year-old? 
<laughs> Scary, isn't it? Healthy at any weight is an unchallenged lie that people tell themselves so they can go on eating whatever they want, which is fine. I've done many self-destructive things too, but no one pretended there was positivity in smoking. Fat activist Ted Kyle, founder of Conscient Health, says the media and public needs to stop catastrophizing obesity. Okay, A, they're not catastrophizing it, and B, they should be. Because it's a full-blown catastrophe. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly, exactly. You know, it's funny, he says a little later on in the same bit here, you're not a freedom fighter because you want to keep eating donuts. And that's right. But food is not the only way we are, for one, glorying in our shame. And for another thing, it's not the only way in which we are trying to deal with anxiety to our detriment in a way that is not actually going to reduce anxiety. It's going to increase anxiety. It is the soft sell. We're trying to soft sell to ourselves not being anxious. And how's that working out for us? Quite frankly, it's not. Not to be reports that the Gospel Coalition tweeted out a quote of Sam Alberry saying, we live in an anxious age. Is he right? The actual quote was, we don't live in a moralistic age where we need to prove people to be sinners. We live in an anxious age where we need to prove to people they're worth something. Now, Sam Alberry has more to say, I'm sure, in the link that the Gospel Coalition posted to Twitter. The headline feature image is how to discuss sexuality in a post-Christian culture. And it's a curious thing that discussing sexuality, they want to highlight this quote in particular. We don't live in a moralistic age where we need to prove people to be sinners. Sam Alberry is not someone with whom I agree with regards to his perspective, as I understand it, on gay Christians, so-called. I think it's a very dangerous thing for Christians to say that they are gay just because they might have a temptation towards homosexuality. I think that's a very dangerous, slippery slope, and I don't see any biblical precedent for it whatsoever. If the big idea is to try and make inroads with the LGBTQ community for the gospel— there are better ways to go about it. You don't have to become the godless in order to have an inroad with the godless. You just need to be a Christian. That's enough. Maybe read C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity. It's enough to be just a Christian. And if it's not enough to be just a Christian, then why is it that you need this Savior? Is this Savior actually your intercessor or is that other label you tack on to your Christianity, the supplement, the necessary additive, the preservative? Is that actually the object of your faith? And the whole Christianity bit, just a social club. If Sam Albury is right, though, that we live in an anxious age, what's the cause? Why? Why? Do we live in an anxious age? And what should we do about it? I think for one thing, what we don't do is we don't kid ourselves. We don't go saying that all of the ways we try to distract ourselves and one another from anxiety are helping. They're not. What are we anxious about? And what are we doing with our anxiety? You know, the book of James is very instructive in the New Testament, as far as practical theology, as far as wisdom. And the book of James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. Yet the man who asks must believe that he will receive 
wisdom from the Lord and not doubt. The man who doubts shouldn't expect to receive anything. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And I think that's also another word that we could use instead of anxious. We're not necessarily, first and foremost, an anxious age. I think we're first and foremost a double-minded age where we hold that things can be true and not true at the same time. And all our logic and all of our reason and all of our ability to make wise choices and enjoy life breaks down accordingly. So you take, for instance, people getting really fat, getting overweight, getting out of shape. We glory in our shame. And for somebody to say, that's not healthy, no, you should probably get some exercise, you should probably not eat that extra donut, is taken as hateful. Regardless of whether objectively saying something like that might be in the best interest of the person we're telling it to. I mean, look at advertising and see increasingly models are being chosen who supposedly look like America. But in some sense, that too is a sign of our double-mindedness. We have to put away beautiful people because they make us feel self-conscious. And yet we want there to be a standard of beauty. We just want the standard of beauty to look like us. And if it looks like us, well, then we can tell ourselves that we're beautiful. That's double-minded. You know, there have been times where I looked back on pictures of myself from especially early in Lauren's and my marriage. And both of us put on some pounds. I, for my part, was not in good shape. I was very unhealthy. I wasn't exercising at all. And I was eating too much. And I was sitting too much. And I was worrying too much. I was anxious. And I think part of the reason I was anxious was that I wasn't getting up and exercising very much. But part of the reason I wasn't getting up and exercising very much was because there were a lot of influences in life that were basically telling me I had blown it. I was a loser, wouldn't amount to anything. And for a lot of the folks in this country, I think that's what it is. I think they're hopeless. I don't think it's just that they're anxious. I don't think it's just that they're double-minded. I think it's that they're hopeless. And apart from Christ, we're all hopeless, but even in some sense, with Christ, we need to be encouraged and given hope by one another. And we, as the church, as Christians, we can bring hope into one another's lives. We can bring encouragement into one another's lives. We can encourage one another to think about things that are good and that are praiseworthy, objectively, according to God's word. Not in a artificial way, not in a phony way, not in a power of positive thinking sort of a way, but in a genuinely obedient, God-honoring way, in a loving one another and edifying the church sort of a way. But we can't encourage one another to think on good things while at the same time denying that there is any such thing as good, just because to say that something is good is going to make the people who are not good feel bad. To say that there are beautiful people who are in good physical shape, who work out, who eat right, who get good rest, who have good healthy habits, who are disciplined, makes the people who are not that way feel self-conscious. But if we tell the folks who make us feel self-conscious as a matter of course, get out of my sight, go away, I don't want to see you, I don't want to look at you, I don't even want to know that you exist. What sort of a future do we have as a culture, as a society? And should we not be very anxious? I think the worst thing somebody could have done for me years ago when I was overweight and unhealthy and worried and anxious would have been to say, you're great just the way you are. Don't change a thing. In fact, here, have another donut. 
I think the worst thing anyone could have done would have been to say, stay just as you are. But see, there's two ways to do that. There's two ways to tell somebody to stay just the way that they are. One is by telling them that the way that they are is quite correct and they shouldn't change and they don't need to change. They could, but they shouldn't. The other way is to tell someone that the way that they are is not correct and also that there's nothing that can be done about it. So don't even try. And neither of those are particularly loving ways to relate to folks who are in a bad way. So what we don't want to do is say, ah, you know, I want to have an outreach to folks who are overweight. And so when in Rome, I guess I'm going to have to pack on some pounds so I fit in or don't fit in as the case may be. Just because I was overweight once upon a time, and I'm not necessarily in uh, tip-top fighting condition now, but I'm not in a super bad way. I stay pretty stable, right around 200 pounds. Do I say that I'm a fat Christian? Just so the potty positivity crowd will feel like I'm accepting towards them? Of course not. Consider... 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 20, the Apostle Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body." There's a couple of things here, there's several things here that I think are instructive to the whole Sam Albury issue, the whole issue of our living in an anxious age, so-called. For one, Paul says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, which is to say that cheap grace, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer would call it, will not do. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Now, why does he say, do not be deceived, unless it is very, not just possible, likely that you will be, unless you take heed. Some are going to try and persuade you that the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul says, they won't. And don't be deceived. Don't be deceived to the contrary. But then notice what he says next. He says, such were some of you. Such were some of you. Past tense, not present tense, not sexually immoral Christians in the present, just because you formerly were or are currently sometimes still tempted, not idolatrous Christians, not adulterous Christians, not homosexual Christians, not thieving Christians, not greedy Christians, not drunk Christians, not reviling Christians, not swindling Christians. Such were some of you. 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And then he says this other thing. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. And that is where wisdom is to be found and where it's needed. Knowing the difference between what is permissible and what is beneficial. He says, I will not be dominated by anything. I will not be controlled by my passions. I won't even be controlled by food. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. And he's not just talking about food here. He's also talking about sexuality. And I think that is of a piece with why so many Americans are overweight, because they lack self-control and restraint and inhibition, and they are dominated by their appetites. They don't rule their appetites. Their appetites rule them. And it isn't to say that you shouldn't have appetites. In fact, the Apostle Paul very clearly says, because there is so much sexual immorality in the world, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband, and they should render unto one another their conjugal duties. They shouldn't deprive one another. One of the accusations against Christ was that he was a glutton and a drunkard. They said that John the Baptist had a demon, the religious leaders, by the way, but they said that Jesus was a drunkard and a glutton, and he wasn't, but they wouldn't have been able to accuse him of that if he had never eaten and enjoyed a good meal, if he had never had a drink and enjoyed a drink. But see, this is where we get very uncareful if we become dominated by either A, our appetite to have these things, or B, our appetite to be known for abstaining from these things. Both need to be regarded as much the same thing because we're missing the point. The point is, God made us, and we belong to God. That's the point. And are we honoring him in the way that we conduct ourselves? You know, I've had lengthy discussions with my cousin Tim Mullet, who is the host of the Bible Bashed podcast. He's also a trained Nuthetic counselor, also a pastor. And I haven't listened to it yet. He's got a lot of content out, and I've been busy with work, plus talking with him, plus recording my own podcast, plus my family, etc., etc., etc. But I note that his podcast was, up until January 31st of this year, titled Iron Sharpening Iron. And the way I know that is because I was scrolling through the episode descriptions, and All the episodes prior to January 31st end off with on this episode of Iron Sharpening Iron. And then January 31st is the first one where instead of Iron Sharpening Iron, it says Bible Bashed on this episode of Bible Bashed. And the title for the podcast episode on January 31st, 2022, is Depression. Is Depression Real? And actually, that's one of the episodes he has sent me and recommended that I listen to, and that'll give me a better, clearer idea of his perspective on depression. We've talked about his views on anxiety, depression, attention deficit disorder, how many Americans are using psychology and psychiatric meds, psychotropic drugs, tranquilizers, as he would say, not medicine, tranquilizers, as a kind of substitute sanctification. Now, I'm not prepared to go that far. I don't think that follows, and I don't don't agree with that. But I will say this, iron sharpening iron is good. That's biblical. Iron sharpening iron is a positive. I don't know why he rebranded his podcast. I'll have to ask him at some point here. Why also change the name of the podcast on this episode in particular? It's a curious thing. Not sure. But I was listening to a different episode of his recently, and 
he mentioned Psalm 94.19, and so also did Toby Schumpter over at Canon Plus. He's got a podcast, Having Two Legs, in which he was talking about what we should do about our feelings, our emotions, preaching to them, the need to preach to them. And I know he and my cousin Tim are Facebook friends, so I don't know if to some extent there's a conversation back and forth going on there or if that's why they're friends because they both like to talk about these things. I'm not sure. But given that they both brought up this passage, Psalm 94, 19, I've been thinking about it. And what it says is, when the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. And this is speaking to God. This is the creature speaking to the creator. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Now I have some questions from lengthy discussion with my cousin Tim, because we have a little bit of a difference, actually a a pretty significant difference of opinion on whether we should ever rebuke people for their emotions, whether we should ever repent of our emotions or call them to repent of their emotions. And I don't believe that's correct. I, I don't see that anywhere in the biblical text, at least from one man to another. I don't see that. And maybe I'm skipping right over it. If you've got some examples, please do share them with me because I may be missing it, honestly. Not trying to ignore it, but I might just not have noticed it. Do we see Christians rebuking Christians in the New Testament for their feelings? Do we see God's people in the Old Testament being rebuked for their feelings? I'm not so sure. I don't think I see that, and maybe I missed it. But what I do see is weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. And that means that sympathy is also a command. Be anxious for nothing might be a command after a fashion, although I I don't know that command is as good a word as encouragement is there on that point. But weep with those who weep. If be anxious for nothing is a command, then so is weep with those who weep. If fear not or be not afraid, or God gave us a spirit of power and of love and of self-control, not a spirit of timidity, if these things are meant to be understood and obeyed as a kind of law for us, then so also is weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. And that means that sympathy is also what we are called to. Not either or, both and. I'm not saying be sympathetic instead of telling people when they're mistaken and incorrect, but I am saying where sometimes it might be a little bit of a mix, valid reasons for them to be upset, sad, brokenhearted, anxious, fearful, angry, along with things which they need to be corrected for, maybe we encourage them and see how that goes. Encourage them in the direction of correct doctrine, an orthodox view of God themselves, one another, life according to God's word. Orthopraxy, such were some of you. We cannot be lawless. Jesus says on the last day, many will say to him, Lord, Lord, and he will say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, you workers of iniquity. My position is that we should by all means preach to the whole person in ourselves and one another. Not just that you act a certain way and you're good. Not just that you think a certain way and you're good. Not just that you say certain things and you're good. Not just that in some sense your soul is already saved in the cloud and you're good. But when Jesus says the first and greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, there's at least four quadrants, four aspects of our being, which Jesus recognizes, and which, yes, we are commanded 
to love the Lord our God with. But I don't understand. I'll, I'll be honest. I'm not trying to be critical of my cousin, Tim. I do disagree, and I'm concerned, given my current position and what I understand of his, even with a great deal of discussion, I am concerned about his position. Why do some prefer to rebuke the emotions themselves or the people for feeling the emotions that they're feeling? I'm not saying the alternative is to affirm those emotions. No. Rather, I think to some extent, we say the emotions are a byproduct of what we believe to be true. In some sense, we are what we habitually do, which is another reason why Sam Elberry is quite incorrect. The whole gay Christian trend is not just wrong, it's dangerous. But to rebuke people for their emotions seems to me as misguided as celebrating them for their emotions. I don't want to hear first and foremost how you feel so that I can tell you well done or thanks for playing. What do you believe to be true and are you living according to the truth and according to the good, according to God's word? What God says is good is good. What God says is true is true. Do you believe that? And you won't necessarily always feel like it when you believe that because it's complicated, because you're complicated, because life's complicated, because we live in a fallen world where there's a lot of people, some very, very sophisticated, who are trying to nudge us in the direction of sin and vice. And even as we want to love them, it may be a slippery slope sometimes. And we may not catch that there's a hook and we've been baited. Some of us are affirming the premise, I think, that our emotions are who we are and what we should be about. Good, bad, or indifferent. And I don't think that's correct. I think that misses the point. I think that's a very poor foundation to build your identity on. You know, consider Luke 5, 31 through 32. And this is a point I brought up with my cousin Tim as we were discussing at length what to call depression, anxiety, attention deficit disorder. His position is, and you can go check it out for yourself and maybe you'll understand it better than I do, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but his position is that there is too much of a rush to call depression, anxiety, attention deficit disorder, a disease, an illness, particularly when there is no physical cause, there's no medical cause, no medical diagnosis, which you can attribute the symptoms to. I'm just going to call this generalized anxiety disorder. We're going to call this over here clinical depression. We're going to call this over here attention deficit disorder or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And we'll give you some meds to help you with the symptoms. And I think to Tim's point, he's concerned that we're going to call an illness what is actually sin. We're going to say that something is an illness as if to do an end run around repentance. And I'm not disputing that a lot of folks do that and that they should stop and we should have no enabling response to them. But there is nothing whatsoever in saying that somebody is ill, which precludes the possibility or even certainty that they are also a sinner. So also the folks who are hiding behind an illness being awful cannot say, well, I'm not a sinner because I'm sick. No, you're both. Maybe some of the ways you're behaving are not, first and foremost, because of you being sinful. Maybe some of the ways you're behaving, to some extent, are because you're not well. But you are both. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are born in sin. We fell in Adam. But there is a difference. There's a very important difference between saying, on the one hand, you could be suffering because of your sin, and on the other hand, saying, you have sin and also you are suffering. Consider, again, Luke 5, 31 through 32, and Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
Some, with merit, perceive in ever calling disease or sickness what is actually sin, an effort, invariably, to muddy the waters. In light of this passage, why would we assume that? Again, to say someone is sick is not to say they are not a sinner. Neither is saying someone is a sinner necessarily to rule out the possibility that they're also sick. Christ here uses both kinds of language. He talks about illness and health and sin and repentance, and so should we. The context of this passage, by the way, if you need a reminder, is that the Pharisees were challenging Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners. They weren't challenging him first and foremost because he was healing people who have actual, literal, diagnosed medical conditions. They were criticizing him because he was eating with tax, with tax collectors and sinners. And he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's interesting. Also, if you look at the miracles in the gospel accounts, the healings where Christ made someone physically whole again, he doesn't just heal He heals and he says, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Because they had a physical condition that needed healed and he had compassion for them. And also they had sin and they needed mercy. They needed forgiveness. My cousin Tim believes that psychotropic drugs are a kind of functional savior for a lot of folk, a kind of substitute sanctification. He even goes very, very close to saying that to take psychotropic drugs is a sin that Christians should be rebuked for and they should repent of that as well. It's a sin for you to feel anxious, depressed, angry, distracted. Also a sin for you to take meds for those things instead of praying, reading your Bible, being obedient, repenting of your sins, But then he says also that if you're a person in authority telling people on tranquilizers to get off of them, you might be cautious about that. Otherwise, you'll get sued. And I hear that, and I think, which is it? Is it a sin to be on these drugs, or isn't it? What does getting sued have to do with telling people to repent, if in fact they're in sin? But here again, all things are permissible, not all things are beneficial. I suppose you're free to tell somebody to get off of these drugs. And if they don't, they're sinning. But then, is that really beneficial given the fact that it's not your call? You don't get to just make that up. He makes a comment as well that I want to respond to and I want to do so publicly because his podcast is public. That one of the reasons why Christians should never utilize or rarely utilize. Still not quite sure when and when not by his rubric, tranquilizers, is because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're spiritual. Oh, I agree with that scripture, but it doesn't follow from that, that physical and material cures, remedies, mitigations, aids are carnal just because they're physical. Someone masking their feelings, their unpleasant feelings with something in the creation instead of going to the creator. Tim says that's not the way sanctification works. And I find myself wondering who is saying otherwise. I think this is a little bit of a straw man. No one I've heard is saying that to take drugs for depression, anxiety, attention deficit disorder is sanctification. Or that you don't need sanctification anymore because you have these drugs. If you're giving someone an upper or downer to help them regulate their emotional state, all you're doing in the majority of cases is dampening their emotional response to their sin. He says that emotional response is supposed to help bring them to repentance if they're a non-Christian, and it's supposed to help in the sanctification process if they are a Christian. But to that I say, couldn't you possibly get the same result from rebuking the emotions themselves? Could you not just be dampening the emotions? I don't argue against these feelings telling us something. I think that they do tell us something. When we feel a certain way, we should pay attention. Why am I feeling this way? 
What's going on? But for the Christian and for a Christian who is giving counsel to others, our responsibility is to go back to God's word and to direct those we are counseling to go back to God's word. What is true? What is good? What is praiseworthy? Think on these things. Tim says he's never met someone who's anxious or depressed or suffering from a thyroid condition or what have you, who says things like, God is so good. He says it's not just about praying the anxiety away, but he says it is about creating a pattern of asking what's true, good, pure, and right in the situation and being marked by thanksgiving. And I think that's all right. I think that's very all right. But I don't think agreeing with that point means that we tell a Christian who is depressed or anxious that they need to fundamentally change everything about their life because they're the problem. That's what we're telling them. If we tell them they need to fundamentally change everything about their life, we're saying that they are the problem. What if they're in an abusive relationship? What if they are being trampled on? We say, ah, well, you should be thankful. It's okay to feel sad. It's okay to feel angry. It's okay to feel even, yes, concerned. Jesus was whatever you want to call the emotion, anxious, nervous, stressed out. Concerned, I think, is too soft a word. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's sweating drops of blood on the eve of his crucifixion, when Jesus is confronted by the sisters of Lazarus, his friend, when he arrives after Lazarus has died of an illness and already been buried, and they're confused and angry, the shortest verse in the whole Bible is just two words in the English. Jesus wept. Read the whole book of Job. Yes, God corrects Job, but he doesn't correct Job by rebuking Job's emotions. He corrects Job by reframing his perspective on who he is and who God is. Actually, the stern rebuke is reserved for Job's three friends, who were just sure that Job's suffering was the result of his having sinned. Very much of a piece with the question that's asked in the New Testament, in the Gospels. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither. This man was born blind so that the power of God could be shown through him right now. We ought not to say to those who are depressed, despairing, anxious, faint-hearted, broken-hearted, that everything is their fault, their whole life is worthless. If they read their Bibles a few times a week and think that they might have a medical condition, if nothing is changing about how they feel, but they haven't gotten a diagnosis yet, we need to be gentle and respectful and compassionate. We must be. Now, even as they're searching for a diagnosis, if they are being awful to those around them because they don't feel well, their not feeling well is no excuse to be awful to the people around them. If they're being mean, hurtful, doing nothing when they could, they just don't feel like it, well, then they need to be reminded that they have a responsibility regardless how they feel. Don't rebuke the feeling, but remind them of what is true and what is good and to do what they ought regardless how they feel, and to pray the prayer of the man Jesus asked, if you believe, do you believe that I can do this thing? Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. What a great prayer. Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. I think it would be very easy for somebody who looks at the current situation in this country and sees a lot of people who are haughty, self-indulgent, lacking in discipline, unwilling to be corrected for anything, who then occasionally come asking for advice, and they just want to be told it's not their fault. I think it would be far too easy to get frustrated about that at a certain point and to grow weary of doing good. Every time they come to talk with you, it's a list of complaints. Would you be glad if they came to you for counseling, armed with a list of happy reports? If that's what they had for you, 
they wouldn't be coming to you in the first place. They wouldn't need counsel. I didn't click into Sam Albury's perspective any more than just to read the share of the tweet from the Gospel Coalition by Not the Bee, quoting Sam Albury. We don't live in a moralistic age where we need to prove people to be sinners. We live in an anxious age where we need to prove to people they're worth something. I think maybe sometimes these kinds of statements provoke a pendulum swing which is equally uncareful in the opposite direction. Why do we live in an anxious age? Correction is needed. We do need to be corrected. But how? How do we correct one another? When the cares of my heart are many, the psalmist writes, your consolations cheer my soul. Not your stern rebukes cheer my soul. Your consolations. Those living in an anxious age, if that's what we call the post post-Christian culture. I I don't know that I'm sold on that as a moniker, but let's suppose for the sake of answering Sam Albury that that is correct. Those living in an anxious age need more than just to be told that they're worth something. In fact, a lot of them were raised being told that self-esteem was the key to success, and it wasn't, and they still haven't been corrected on that. Now, we don't want to overcorrect in the wrong direction or on the wrong point to where we say, ah, okay, well, if the world is telling us self-esteem is everything, well, then we've got to destroy your view of yourself. We've got to convince you that you're worthless. Your whole life is worthless. Everything is wrong because you are wrong. Everything about you is wrong. No, no, that's not discernment. That's not careful. That's not wise and godly counsel. That's not biblical. But neither is it biblical to say everybody who's anxious is anxious because they don't believe they're worth something. No, a great many of them are anxious because they've been told that they are the center of their own universe. And we make very poor gods. We just do. And at a certain point, the whole thing breaks down and it doesn't make any sense. And we become futile in our thinking, our foolish Hearts and minds are darkened and unable to understand. This is why the psalmist and the writer of Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I think it is wise counsel, where I do agree with Tim. It is wise counsel to tell those who are depressed, who are anxious, who are very distracted, to be more others-centered. Bear the fruit of the Spirit, by all means. Yes, Go to the right church. Go to a good church, preferably one that isn't just telling you everything you think, feel, believe, and are is quite correct all the time. Also, if I may, don't go to one that tells you everything you've ever done, wanted, felt, thought, believed is fair game. Everything. No, that's not appropriate either. Do read your Bible, though, and you'll know how to find a good church, and how to love your neighbor appropriately. And you'll know the love that God has for you. And then you can be consoled. Battling depression might be accomplished by pursuing repentance. Also too, some people don't have a medical diagnosis yet. And that doesn't mean that there isn't a physical medical condition driving it. And in the meantime, or even if they never get a medical diagnosis, we still have a responsibility to be compassionate towards them. You know, consider this, something my cousin Tim says in his podcast episode, the one I listened to most recently. He said that the DSM-5 definition of depression is like the exact opposite of the fruit of the Spirit. It's just like the devil's excuse for not having the fruit of the Spirit. I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. I think we need to be careful on that point. And when I say careful, I mean you're not being careful enough in what you're saying. I don't just mean we need to be more careful in the abstract, like forever, and never land and never state a position. My position is you're not being careful enough. 1 Corinthians 14.23, Paul writes, If therefore the whole church comes together, and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, 
will they not say that you are out of your minds? This is to say it is okay to take some consideration for the opinions of outsiders into account. It doesn't mean that you pursue friendship with the world, because God's word says that's enmity with God. But it is to say, whether you're dealing with a Christian or a non-Christian who is anxious, depressed, having a hard time concentrating, it is not just okay, it is wise, it is appropriate, it is necessary to consider whether outsiders even, and unbelievers even, are going to think you're out of your minds and being unreasonable in your approach to these things. And that doesn't mean that you agree with them on everything, but it is to say how you communicate your disagreement and where you concede that they might be correct, they might be right about some things, is part of your spiritual act of worship. It is part of how you honor God and obey God. Not just rebuking sin and folly in others, also keeping ourselves blameless. Also consider the opening paragraphs introducing the Declaration of Independence. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth a separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind is wise, noble, honorable, virtuous, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind, where there is a clear, undeniable violation of what is good and what is true and what is right. You hear something being said that is just patently false. By all means, correct it with gentleness and respect. You see something being done, which is objectively wrong, unjust, evil, corrupt. Correct it clearly, concisely, and make sure you are rightly handling the word of truth when you do so. But all the more, no less, all the more, when you're engaged in that kind of work, you must have a decent respect to the opinions of mankind in order to have a good reputation with outsiders, in order to be blameless in your generation. You must, you must, you must. And yes, that includes being honest about the reasons why we're anxious and depressed and having a hard time concentrating. Some of it is just plain old folly, just bad choices. Life is hard because we're making bad choices. And that's where you need counsel, advice, good advice, good biblical advice, according to God's word to know what is true and what is good and how it applies to the decisions you need to make in life. One last thought here, and then I got to run. And by run, what I actually mean is go to bed and get some sleep. I listened to John Harris's Conversations That Matter podcast episode where he was sharing some thoughts recently on Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl R. Truman. And he says something which I don't... I don't think I agree with based on the evidence presented. I don't. And I might just be unfamiliar, and I need to do a little bit more digging, a little bit more research. You out there, if you know anything about this and can weigh in on it, I would appreciate that. But he says that Carl Truman seems to be a communitarian or is thought to be a communitarian by some Communitarians being described as, quote-unquote, soft socialists. I haven't heard anything from Truman that I thought to myself, hmm, it sounds like socialism. Not, not anything at all. Not yet, anyway. Now, that said, I have been very interested to read at some point Truman's book, Republicrats. I did read Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. I loved it. I think it's a great book. I agree with his perspective on the linear progression. But I'll be honest, I think Republicrats looks like a very interesting book, if only because of the cover art. And I might find that I like Carl Truman less or agree with him less after reading Republicrats. So, you know, I'll I'll uh <clears throat> I'll keep from being too judgy 
towards John Harris's comments here, his perspective on Truman, at least until I've had a chance to read Republicrats and see what I think for myself. But he's got a quote here, and I want to share it because there's an important point that relates to this whole larger topic. It's a quote from Carl Truman, and I quote, Protestants need to recover both natural law and a high view of the physical body. Some will immediately object that natural law will not persuade the wider world to change its opinions about anything. I would concede that. My concern here is not primarily for the outside world, but for the church herself. She needs to be able to teach her people coherently about moral principles. It is unlikely that an individual pastor is going to be able to shape a Supreme Court ruling on abortion, though he should certainly try as he is able. But he is very likely to be confronted with congregants asking questions about matters from surrogacy to transgenderism. And in such circumstances, a good grasp of the biblical position on natural law and the order of the created world will prove invaluable. Connected to this, of course, is the importance of the body. Protestantism, with its emphasis on the preached word grasped by faith, is perhaps peculiarly vulnerable to downplaying the importance of the physical. But to tear identity away from physical embodiment and to root it entirely in the psychological would be to operate along the same trajectory as transgenderism. A recovery of a biblical understanding of embodiment is vital, and closely allied with this is the fact that the church must maintain its commitment to biblical sexual morality, whatever the social cost might be. So, John Harris doesn't like that Truman uses the word psychological here, and he would prefer biblical language instead. Heart, soul, mind, instead of saying psychological. Might I point out, with respect, John, I like you. I think you've done very good work. But, for one, I think this is a little bit nitpicky. Also, too, psychology at the root, if you break down the term, the word, psychology is literally the study of the soul. Now, whether the godless mainstream psychologists are capable of doing this when they reject God's word, that's a fine question. That's a fair question. But still, nevertheless, to say that there is such a thing as the study of the soul and that we would call it psychology is not unbiblical any more than using the term trinity. To say we are going to study the soul is no less biblical than to say we are going to study man in general. I don't find the word anthropology in the Bible either, and yet we do learn a great deal about man in the Bible, even though ultimately we know most about man, about ourselves, about our souls, when we listen to what God has to say. I think Truman is right here in the quote that's provided. I think he's quite right, actually. I think that there is, in my reading of church history, something of a neglect, particularly in our day, in the Christian circles I've run in. There's something of a neglect for the importance of the embodiment of our Christian faith. And I say that not because I just wish we focused more on the fact that we have bodies and we're supposed to be embodying our Christian faith. I say that because biblically, I just don't see any way around it. Particularly when you read what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. How is it that we can read that and yet come away saying all that matters, the only really truly important thing is our souls, our hearts, our minds, how we feel, what we think, what we say. Far be it from me to be nitpicky myself, particularly at two in the morning. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I gotta run. As always, thank you for listening. Be anxious for nothing. Fear not. Put your hope in God. His consolations will cheer your soul. Until next time, God bless.
You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.